Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about colon and rectal cancer with Dr. Amit Khanna. Dr. Khanna is the Director of Colon and Rectal Surgery for the Bridgeport Region and an Associate Professor at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. So Amit, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So uh, I'm a colon and rectal uh, surgeon, and um, I treat um, diseases both benign um, and, um, you know, malignant uh, of the colon and the rectum, and uh, uh, also help to organize um, programs for our digestive health service line. So it includes um, all digestive health disorders. Um and um, largely also a lot of what we do is, is um, educate the community on um, prevention. So, so let's pick up on that um, and put two of those things together. So, you know, when we talk about colorectal cancer, tell us a little bit more about it. Um, how common is it? How lethal is it? Who gets it? Why should we care? So it's it's a, a huge um, uh, uh, public health issue for us. Um, you know, we're probably going to see a predicted number of cases um, by the American Cancer Society. You know, approaching 150,000 new cases of colon and rectal cancer in the United States. Um, right now, it's the third most commonly diagnosed. Uh, cancer in the United States in men and women. The good news is that, um, you know, we're seeing lower incidence rates um, in older populations. Uh, but unfortunately, um, we are also seeing uh, some some um, some trends for increases in younger adults. So um, we're making progress in a lot of areas and we're also facing new challenges in others. So when you say younger adults, how young is young? Well, you know, classically, our screening guidelines um, have been aimed at um, the population older than 50. So the classic um, age of getting your first colonoscopy, if you don't have a family history or other risk factors, has been 50. And that's largely been designed because we know that the incidence of um, colorectal cancer rises significantly after the age of 50. And that's been the way it's been, you know, really, you know, for many, many years. In 2018, though, uh, a recognition of changes in our um, cancer statistics showed that we were seeing uh, patients uh, uh, in their younger years, meaning under 50, um, having a more, uh, having a a rise in their incidence. And so, we were very concerned about that from, you know, about 2012 to 2016, we were seeing uh, about a 2% increase in younger populations under 50 developing colorectal cancer. And so organizations like the American Cancer Society in 2018 dropped the age of recommendation to 45. Not, not all of the societies have gone along with that, but there's an increasing recognition that it's, it's becoming a, a, a a greater issue than uh, just those over 50. 
And do we know why that is? I mean, why are young people now getting colon cancer? So it's a great question. And, and I think that we don't know the answer. Um, we have uh, some um, data and some evidence that suggests that um, a significant portion of the younger population um, has a family history um, and there's some genetic component, um, but that's not the whole story. So only about 40% of those patients have a family history and an even smaller percent actually have a genetic predisposition that we're aware of to put them at increased risk. So it's got to be something um, that uh, is not related to those specific family history risks and those genetic disorders which predispose uh, patients to get colon cancer at an earlier age. In fact, the majority of those patients don't have those risk factors. Um, so what we really think is that it, it, it could be related to what we call the lifestyle risk factors and, um, and, and environmental factors. So tell me more about what those lifestyle and, and environmental factors are. So uh, we think, you know, obviously the big one whenever we're talking about digestive diseases is, is our diet. And so, um, you know, how uh, the younger population under 50s diet may impact their risk for colorectal cancer is being studied. And we don't know exactly how that is, but we, we do have some surrogates for that. And um, one of them is obesity, which we know increases the risk of colorectal cancer. Uh, we also know that physical inactivity increases the risk of colorectal cancer. Um, uh, we also know that um, there's uh, data that the microbiome, meaning the bacterial flora, the balance of different bacteria that reside in, in the um, colon and in the GI tract may play a role in the development of, of uh, colorectal cancer. And um, there's uh, a, a lot of research um, going on now to help us understand what those factors are. But at this time, it's not entirely clear. What about other factors? I mean, um, smoked meats, uh, particular uh, fats in the diet, anything like that uh, increase your risk of colorectal cancer? Absolutely. Um, great point. Yeah, I, I think that we know that processed meats, um, just as those you described, um, are associated with an increased risk of uh, colorectal cancer. And um, now, you know, we are... Um, looking to understand um, in younger populations how much of a factor um, those uh, are playing um, in, in the development of uh, colorectal cancer in these younger age groups. And of note, identifying patients earlier with early stage disease affords um, that patient a, a better um, survival. And so if we can catch um, lesions early, we have a much better chance of helping that patient through their cancer journey and having uh, an ultimate great outcome for that patient. But the later they present or the later we diagnose those patients and their stage is more advanced, it becomes um, increasingly harder to get those patients a good outcome. And so in the younger populations, particularly, it's it's a challenge because um, it's a paradigm shift, uh, it, you know, within within not only the patient themselves, but also in the healthcare community to recognize that patients under the age of 50, um, you know, 
are a group of patients that are still at risk for colorectal cancer, and, you, and it's not just uh, 50 plus folks. What are the signs and symptoms that people should be looking for that they should go and see their doctor? Yeah, so I think um, there's that's such an important uh, thing, I think, for patients to understand is that um, rectal bleeding uh, being a very, very common thing, um, but it's it's abnormal. It's always abnormal. And so if you're having rectal bleeding, that's something that needs to be investigated by your provider. A change in your bowel function. So if your bowel function is I'm regular, you know, once or twice a day and now you're going six times a day, that that's that's something that you want to communicate to your provider. Um, and weight loss is a really important one, too. If you're not trying to lose weight and you're losing weight or you have a significant change in your appetite um, and change in bowel function um, may also be um just um, discomfort when you're moving your bowels or a change in the character of your stools or the color. And um, those are all signs that you should communicate to your physician and be aware of that those changes really do need to be discussed and evaluated. Um, I think it's um, also really important to understand your family history. So if you've got siblings or older siblings and, you know, you're 35 and you're, you know, may have an older sibling or your parents uh, or other family members that have a history of polyps. And so having a family history of polyps can also impact how you should be screened. And so I think the paradigm of screening patients just based on their age is, is not adequate. And what we really need to think about is personalized screening for each patient and then educating patients on the importance of recognition of symptoms, regardless of their age. And so I'm going to pick up on screening in a minute, but but getting back to these symptoms, I mean, for many of our listeners out there, they may be thinking, you know, if I have a little bit of rectal bleeding, it might just be hemorrhoids. If, you know, I have a little bit of diarrhea, it might be, you know, the meal that I ate last night uh, that just didn't agree with me. You know, is there is there a time frame that these symptoms should be continuous for or present for before people start sounding the alarm bells? I think it's a great point. Um, I, I, I usually tell patients... Um, that if you've noticed a consistent, um, if you've noted consistent symptoms over a period of two weeks, um, that's probably enough for you to seek care. Um, and sometimes patients are very um, astute in saying, you know what, I ate something that was bad yesterday and I got sick and then two days later I felt fine. Um, I think it's the patients that are having a sustained um, set of symptoms over a period of two weeks or more. And those are the patients we're real concerned about, period. I mean, it, 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 if we think about patients who have rectal pain, for example, over a period of at least um, you know two to three weeks uh, and rectal bleeding, that can be um, a, a significant issue. And not every one of these patients that's having these symptoms is going to have um, uh, a, a colorectal cancer. In fact, the majority are not. But um, we know you're at increased risk when you have those symptoms. And I think that it's also um, sort of the engine warning light 
of the body. And I always say this to patients who may come in with a benign anal rectal disorder, which may cause bleeding hemorrhoids or an anal fissure, which is a tear in the anal mucosa. But that warning system, we want to treat that bleeding so that that warning system's intact, right? So if you do have hemorrhoids and you're bleeding every so often, if it's happening all the time, then you really lose that as a warning signal because it's happening every so often and you blow it off. So we really want to get those other benign diseases treated uh, so that we still have that warning system in place. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. When we come back, we're going to talk more about screening with my guest, Dr. Amit Khanna. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Amit Khanna. We're talking about surgical care of colorectal cancer. And Amit, right before the break, we were talking about this increase that we've seen in terms of young people getting colorectal cancer. And we talked a little bit about the symptoms that people should be on the lookout for, whether that's a change in bowel habit or whether it's um, feeling full or whether it's rectal bleeding. But oftentimes... Um, Am I mistaken, but are is oftentimes if you've got symptoms and you're presenting with colorectal cancer, you're picking up colorectal cancers later than if you were asymptomatic. Is that right? Absolutely. So, um, you know, depending on where the um, colon lesion or um, polyp, which is uh, uh, early changes or, or abnormal changes or growths in the colon that are not cancer yet, um, you may be completely asymptomatic. And if they're on the right side of the colon, um, you may not ever develop any symptoms at all. And that's the fundamental um, benefit of doing screening um, for uh, colorectal polyps and, and colorectal cancers, you know, using a variety of modalities uh, because you can be asymptomatic. And so one of the things that I always think is great about colorectal cancer screening is that you can pick up these cancers like you can with many screening modalities. You can pick up these cancers before they become a cancer and you can potentially eliminate them right then and there um, during that that screening test so that it's not just screening. It's also preventative. Absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, as someone who is a, a 
you know, in medical school and I was trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do with, uh, with my life in terms of uh, my profession and my focus, that was really very appealing to me was the idea that you could identify disease in its early form, intervene and really change the course of someone's life and, and prevent them from having to go through um, uh, cancer um, or potentially uh, improve their quality of life so early uh, in the process. We're able to use a variety of different tests to identify early stages of the disease. So let's talk about, let's talk about these screening modalities. And, you know, First off, the the indications for screening and who needs to get screening. So you mentioned that the American Cancer Society, because we've seen an increase in colorectal cancer in young patients, has moved their uh, guidelines down to asymptomatic people starting at the age of 45. But you also mentioned that it shouldn't just be age. So if you do have a family history, let's say, at when should you get screened? The general thought is that personalized screening is going to be uh, a much more um, high-yield approach to screening patients. So what are those things that are important? Well, a personal history of colorectal cancer, if you've had a history of polyps yourself or you personally had colorectal cancer, that's a much higher risk group. Uh, a family history of colorectal cancer, uh, personal history of inflammatory bowel disease, whether that's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And then if you've had a suspected history of uh, some familial syndromes that, that put you at high risk for um, having polyps, uh, and then also things like having a history of radiation, those are all things that put you at a higher risk, including uh, family members that have had colorectal cancer or polyps on their colonoscopies. And so if you fit into any of those criteria, when should you be getting screened? So depending on your risk category, it's not the same for every patient, but if we look at patients that have a strong family history or have a known family member, it depends on how close that family member is to you. So a first degree relative might be different than, you know, a cousin. But um, generally what we say is if you have a first degree family member who's developed colon or rectal cancer, we should be screening that patient at least 10 years prior to when that patient's family member was diagnosed. So, um, so 10 years prior to their diagnosis or 45 years of age, um, whichever, whichever is exactly. And you mentioned radiation. So if you've had a previous history of radiation, you're in a higher risk category. What do you mean by a history of radiation? I mean, is that going to a tanning salon? Is that getting a chest x-ray? Is that having radiation therapy for ovarian cancer? I mean, what is that? And how does that play into when you should be getting screened for colorectal cancer? Yes. So we're talking about radiation for, um, you know, pelvic or abdominal cancers. So, you know, really radiation to treat a prior cancer in the abdomen. That Those are the patients that, that we, we tend to want to identify and screen more frequently. Um, the, the lower dose radiation uh, patients, um, you know, that are, you know, maybe having um, 
perhaps more frequent exposure, um, we haven't, uh, we don't know enough about those patients uh, to justify screening them at a, at, a, at a different or more aggressive interval. It's more for patients that have had uh, treatment for a prior cancer with radiation to the abdomen or pelvic region. And so, you know, Amit, when you talk about screening at, at different intervals, it really brings up this whole bugaboo of the different screening modalities. Um, so people have heard about things like, um, you know, stool tests that are advertised on TV, um, all the way up to colonoscopies. And then, you know, these are all recommended at different intervals. So can you walk us through kind of what are the recommended tests uh, for colorectal screening, how frequently we should be getting them, and how you decide what test you should be getting? I mean, should everybody be getting colonoscopies or is it just simpler to do a, a stool test? Um, to, how, how do we make these decisions? Uh, that's a great question. And, and it's actually, honestly the most frequent question I get asked by family members um, uh, and friends is, you know, what test should I get? And the answer I always have is the same, which is the test that you're willing to get is the best test. So um, often patients I see um, are very hesitant to have a colonoscopy. And, and the interval for an average risk patient um, is at age um, 45, um, not all societies, but by the American Cancer Society is at 45. And then if you have a normal exam, it's to have a follow-up colonoscopy at 10 years. Um, but there are other options. Um, some patients don't want to undergo a colonoscopy. Um, the cost is an issue. They may not have access to a colonoscopy that's, um, uh, or it's quite costly for them. Um, and there are other ways uh, to approach this uh, for average risk individuals. And I emphasize average risk individuals. Um, the most, I think, widely advertised one that you'll see on TV is a stool DNA uh, test. And that's one um, that's sent as a kit um, to your home. And then you send a stool sample back. And that's generally um, supposed to be performed every three years. If it is positive, it's important that patients understand that then they are going to be recommended to have a colonoscopy. So those two tests combined can be more expensive you know, than having a colonoscopy alone. Um, the other two tests that are stool-based tests are what we call FIT tests or fecal immunochemical tests, which are uh, sensitive for detecting blood in the stool, and then something called a guaiac-based fecal occult blood test or an FOBT. FOBT test, which is done annually. Both of those other two tests, the FIT test and the FOBT test are done annually. So those are cards you get sent home with and then you send back to your doctor and they're processed for the presence of blood. I mean, the other two tests that we call as structural exams include, you know, CT colonography, which is a CT scan that acts to create images of your colon. And that's sort of been termed the virtual colonoscopy. Um, and then there's a, a more limited 
um, colonoscopy, which is known as a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Um, and those other two tests, the CT colonography and the flex sig, uh, as we refer to it, a flexible sigmoidoscopy, um, the intervals on those are every five years. But I, I want to make clear that the flexible sigmoidoscopy has limitations because it's only um, exposing or it's only visualizing the rectum and the sigmoid colon. And we know that um, lesions can grow in the middle part and on the right part of the colon, and those can be missed. So um, we emphasize that a, a colonoscopy has some significant advantages over a flexible sigmoidoscopy. And then the limitation of a CT colonography is that if you do see a polyp, you can't intervene at that time. And so the colonoscopy has the opportunity to be both diagnostic and therapeutic. If polyps are identified, they can be removed at the same at the same setting. So, so many advantages and disadvantages of all of these different tests. So let, let's go over them just a little bit more. So the FIT test and the FOBT. So these are both stool-based tests and they're both annual. So if somebody says, well, I don't mind doing a stool-based test, um, which one's better? Well, I, I think that um, the cost of the FIT tests and the FOBT tests um, make it uh, very scalable. So um, doing an annual exam for one of these tests is actually, um, you know, it's, it's, it's inexpensive. It's easy to hand out. Um, the problems with some of these is that um, a lot of patients don't send them back. And so the yield on those can, can be an issue. Um, but uh, it's a reasonable test. Um, it's good for detecting uh, blood, but um, it's also a cross-sectional test. So if you're not bleeding at that instance when you do the test um, from, say, a polyp that's present um, or a potentially a, a, a early lesion, you might miss it. Um, the stool DNA test is a bit more sensitive because it's looking for specific changes in, in stool DNA, and it's quite um, good at picking up cancers above 90% um, sensitive. Um, the downside of the stool DNA tests are that um, they're not as specific. So um, it isn't that uncommon that we'll find patients who have positive stool DNA tests and they get a colonoscopy and, and we don't find polyps. And um, it, it's so that so it's not as specific as we would like it to be, but it's still a pretty, pretty reliable test. And um, I think we're going to see more and more patients take advantage of stool DNA based tests as sort of a filter before they go to colonoscopy. And those stool DNA tests, you said, are only three years versus the FIT test and the FOBT, which is every year. Right. And, and, and I think the real important misconception that I often hear with patients is they'll think that the stool DNA test is equivalent to a colonoscopy, and it's not. The interval is, is very different. The stool-based DNA test is every three years, and a colonoscopy is every 10 years. And so... Um, it's really up to the patient to decide, well, do I want to do a colonoscopy and be done with this for 10 years if it's normal? Or do I want to have to keep going through this every three years? Um, and, if it, and if they are positive, any of the DNA tests, then I'm going to have to have a colonoscopy anyway. And then I'm going to, um, uh, and then, and then, you know, if, 
if it is positive, I have to have a colonoscopy. If I get a colonoscopy to start off with and it's normal, well, I could go to 10 years. But if they do find something, they'd also be able to treat it at the same time in most cases. Yeah. So my final question, just really quickly in the 30 seconds that we have left, you mentioned that colonoscopies are really expensive, but aren't they covered by insurance? Yeah, they are covered by insurance and um, and Medicare covers colonoscopy and most insurance plans cover colonoscopy. We also have um, state by state variation in, in colonoscopy, um, but most of, um, you know, Medicaid uh, in most states covers colonoscopy and there are actually a lot of resources to help patients access colonoscopy. Um, but sometimes the out-of-pocket expenses for colonoscopy, even with insured patients, can be significant. And so, you know, one of the goals, um, I think, for us as a healthcare system is to realize that the return on, on the investment for um, us uh, increasing our um, screening colonoscopy rates uh, is has been borne out in the data in that um, colorectal cancer in the 50 and above age group has really, really been impacted by the advent of aggressive screening colonoscopy programs. Dr. Amit Khanna is Director of Colon and Rectal Surgery for the Bridgeport Region and an Associate Professor at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.